There is not a single instance in which Jesus was ever critical of the law. Jesus' criticisms were always, always directed toward the tradition. They not only deny the clarity of Scripture, but they also deny the sufficiency of Scripture. And that's where these traditions really come into play. Because these traditions, as we said earlier, are designed and built and put into place in order to say, God's law is so important that you keep. Let's make a buffer. Let's add something to it just to make sure that you are able to keep these commandments. So to put that another way, not only do the scribes and Pharisees deny the clarity of Scripture, they also deny the sufficiency of Scripture. Because in essence, what they have said is, God's law is not quite enough. We need these extra traditions to help us. And so there is a Therefore, a twofold denial of the nature of Scripture, denying the fact that God's people can understand it and denying the fact that the Scriptures that God has given, the law that God has given is in and of itself sufficient for God's people. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And other places that we could point to that say to us that our Scriptures teach us that in the Scriptures we are given everything that we need for salvation and godliness. There is nothing that's needed by by way of information that we need for salvation or a life of godliness that's not found in the Scriptures. That's what we call the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scriptures. And the scribes and the Pharisees deny both of those. And so what I want us to begin by seeing is seeing what a low view of Scripture one holds when they think that Scripture just somehow cannot be understood by common people. And furthermore, Scripture is not quite enough. The law of God's not quite enough We need to modify it. We need to add some things to it in order to make it sufficient for the people's needs. Do you see what a low, do you see what an insulting view of Scripture that is? What a patronistic view of Scripture that is? What a a demeaning view of Scripture it is? To say God's Word needs us, the explainers, the clarifiers, and the ones who can add what's needed to it, in order for you people to be able to live by God's law. So that's the starting point. And that's the point from which we begin approaching the passage and seeing just what sort of a a group of people Jesus is dealing with. Jesus will not deal with these people on the terms of saying to them or or taking the, the position with them, you know, these traditions that you have really kind of started out good, but we need to we need to back up a little bit. We need to modify these. Jesus instead is taking the approach, these things have been wicked from the start. So we've seen that in generalities, but let's now see this in actuality in the Scripture, in the passage before us. And I want to just show us how clearly Jesus is saying to these scribes and Pharisees, His point is, 
This is not a good thing gone awry. Instead, you have had a wholly and completely deficient view of the Scriptures from the start. And we see this primarily in Jesus' use of words, the force of the words that He's going to use. So verse 5, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, of course, as they ask that question, they're not asking it because they want to know the answer. They're not asking for their own information. They're not curious as to why they haven't done this. Instead, the question itself itself is an accusation. Why don't your disciples do what we all know that they're supposed to do, what's expected of them to do? And verse 6, And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written. So let's pause right there. So we now are given a clear and definitive contrast in the passage. And the contrast is between what Jesus just said, it is written, and what we've read now twice, the tradition of the elders. When we come to the Gospels and we we begin to see this picture of Jesus, one of the misconceptions that's a very popular misconception of Jesus that is quite frankly an easy misconception to fall into if you read the Gospels in a lazy sort of manner. One of the misperceptions of Jesus is that Jesus went about in opposition to the law. That Jesus Jesus was just always in confrontation with these people who wanted to be sticklers about the law, especially like the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus repeatedly is saying, you know, this is what they're telling you to do, but I say don't do that. And that has led to a very widespread misconception of Jesus in such a way that Jesus has been painted as this person, as this Messiah, as this Savior, that all He wanted to do was just love people. He just came to love people and He was so tired of people that were so wrapped up in keeping the law, and he was all about just, let's just get rid of the law and just let's just love people. That's a misperception of Jesus, and it's a misperception that springs from failing to recognize two very, very key phrases and what those two key phrases mean. And the first of those key phrases is, it is written. So when we read the words, it is written in the New Testament, or anywhere in the Bible, really, but when we read this, the words specifically in the Gospels, it is written, we should understand that that's saying to us not that, that somebody is recalling something they read from somewhere, like sometimes we'll say something of like that, you know, I, I read somewhere that da-da-da-da-da, or I read this or whatever. That's not what's being said. When we read the words, it is written, it is saying, this is what Scripture says. So it is written, and then Jesus follows that up with what Isaiah wrote. Now, the other phrase that we come across is, it is said, or you have heard it said. So we right now, we recognize the fact that we've read those phrases many times in the Gospels. So when we read the words, it is said, or you have heard it said, then what that is referring to is this body of teaching that came down from the rabbis that was this collective body of of teachings about traditions and customs, all of which were designed to, as we said, surround the law and give a buffer around it and be binding upon the people in such a way that when you do what the rabbis say, you are therefore assured of keeping the law that these, these 
teachings have been built around, right? And so whenever we see that phrase, and so if you read back to the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that phrase over and over. You have heard it said, but I say. So what Jesus is not doing is He's not setting Himself up in opposition to the law. Jesus is setting Himself up in opposition to the traditions. And that is the key thing to see. Jesus never, never, there is not a single instance in which Jesus was ever critical of the law. There's not a single instance in which Jesus ever abrogated the law or did not keep the law. In fact, He said, my purpose, the reason I have come is not to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. Jesus' criticisms were always, always directed toward the tradition. In fact, if you wanted to summarize all the conflicts of Jesus' life, all the conflicts of His ministry really could be boiled down into two or even one category. The bulk of the conflicts that Jesus experienced were conflicts over the traditions. That was the conflicts we saw earlier in the gospel over Jesus' keeping of the Sabbath or what they thought was the lack of His keeping of the Sabbath or the fact that they plucked some heads of grain or the fact that He was eating with uh, Levi or the fact that they, they weren't fasting. None of those things were the law of God. All of those things were the spoken verbal traditions of the rabbis. This is why Matthew 23, Jesus will say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you burden the people with loads that they can't bear. And you yourselves can't bear them. And you give them no help in bearing them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for burdening the people with such a burden. That was what Jesus was so critical of. So that was the one conflict. The other conflict was the fact that Jesus claimed the authority to do away with such traditions. So really, you could think of those as the same conflict or two conflicts, but the bulk of Jesus' interactions, negative interactions with the leaders of Israel had to do with His insistence that these traditions need to stop. Jesus' stance was, I'm not following them. I follow the the law of God to the letter, but I don't follow those. And I have the authority to not follow those and to do away with those. Okay, so these traditions, as we see here, the what is said, what is spoken, the traditions of the elders is set in contrast against what is written. So well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written. So now Jesus goes to the scriptures And he quotes Isaiah, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You see it there. It's quite plain. Teaching as doctrines. In other words, teaching as something that you, as the people of God, must believe, must affirm. Teaching as something you must affirm The commandments, not of God, but the commandments of men. So that quotation there from Isaiah, we said earlier, back in chapter 3, if you recall the passage of of the sin that is unforgivable or sometimes called the unpardonable sin, which we said was the sin of enlightened blasphemy, the sin of, of having the truth of God revealed to you and understanding this is the true words of God, this is what should be believed, yet refusing to submit that enlightened blasphemy 
which leads to eventually, as we said, a withdrawal of the Holy Spirit, which then produces a state in which confession and repentance is not possible. And so that's why that sin is unforgivable. So we said there that that, that is perhaps the most frightening passage in Mark's gospel. And I think it probably is. This certainly comes in a close second. Because if we consider carefully what Jesus just said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And therefore, their worship is vain, is useless, is worthless. That should strike a note within all of our hearts and cause all of the people of God to say in, in your soul to yourself, to, to ask yourself, am, am I one of these people? Do, do I honor God with my lips while my heart is far from Him? And is my worship of Him true or is it vain? That, that should be a phrase, that should be a statement that, that wakes up the people of God and causes us to ask in the depths of our soul, does this describe me? Do I honor God outwardly with my lips and my words, but deep in the recesses of my heart, is my heart far from Him? So a frightening warning. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now let's begin to notice the language that Jesus is going to use. And I just, we're just going to walk through this and I'll just show you how the language is perfectly crystal clear. And Jesus leaves no second option. He leaves no other way to understand what he's saying. He says, first of all, verse 8, you leave the commandment of God. You leave the commandment of God. So what the scribes and the Pharisees would have said, if they were here today, is they would have said something to us to the effect, we honor the Word of God. In fact, we love and honor the Word of, of God so much that we desire to protect it and to ensure its obedience. And so we have established this dual system of authority, the Scriptures, but also the traditions of the rabbis. And these two authorities together ensure that we have a high view of Scripture. That's what the scribes and Pharisees probably would have said to us if they were here this morning. Jesus says, uh-uh. Notice Jesus doesn't say, you honor the Word of God less than you honor your traditions. Jesus doesn't say, you honor your traditions alongside the Word of God. He says very plainly, you leave the Word of God. You leave the commandments. Now that word leave is very clear. It's very plain. It means abandon. It means reject. It means to make void. It means to nullify. It means to cancel. Look with me at some other instances in which Mark uses the same word. Chapter 1, verse 31. And he came and took her by the hand. This is Peter's mother-in-law. And lifted her up and the fever left her. Remember that passage? We said that the fever didn't just subside. We said very clearly in that passage that Mark is saying to us that the fever abandoned her. The fever vacated. The fever was gone. Same word, you abandon the commandment of God. Chapter 10 and verse 28, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Peter's point is, is not to say, Jesus, you know, 
we've still got our fishing boats and our nets. And we thought we could fish on the weekends and follow you on the weekdays, you know, or maybe we could follow you Monday through Thursday and then we could go and fish for a few days. No, Peter said we abandoned our life to follow you. We forsook our life in order to follow you. Same word. You have forsaken, you have abandoned the commandments in order to, we're told, hold to the tradition of men. Now that word hold simply means to grasp, to grip firmly, to secure, to seize hold of, to to grab and hold and raise up. Once again, that same verse from chapter 1, verse 31, Mark uses the word this way, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. That was Peter's mother-in-law again. Jesus came, grabbed her, and Jesus pulled her out of the bed. Chapter 5, verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Chapter 3 and verse 21, it can often mean something much more stern, much more harsh, not just to grab, but to seize. Same word, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. Chapter 6, verse 17, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John. Same word. So there it carries a sense of not just grabbing, but grabbing in a violent sort of way. So this is what Jesus says. You have abandoned the commandment of God in order to seize upon, grip firmly, hold on to the tradition of man. Jesus is not painting a picture here of some people who have a high regard for the Scriptures And in their high regard for the Scriptures, they've added to that a regard for the tradition of the scribes because all these things just sort of come come together to mean the same thing. That's not what Jesus is describing. What Jesus is describing is a group of people who disdain the Word of God so much that they have abandoned it in order to cling to something entirely different in their life, which is to say the tradition of the scribes and the elders. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Am I importing anything in there, you think? Is is that just plainly what Jesus is saying to us? Is Jesus allowing us the option of thinking, well, these Pharisees, they really did think a lot of the Scriptures and, and they really did have this good intention that sort of went awry after a while. Jesus isn't leaving us that option. We are not adding or importing anything into what Jesus is saying. We're simply saying, this is what he said. He said to the scribes and Pharisees, you have abandoned the word of God in order to instead cling to your traditions. Verse nine, and he said to them, you have a fine way or you have a good way or you are very successful. You are good at, Jesus says, rejecting. Now, that word rejecting means to invalidate, to negate, to nullify, to reject outright. You are good. You are skilled. You are effective. Now, Jesus isn't giving them a compliment. He's giving them a sideways insult. You know, kind of like when you say, well, you're really good at doing something that's bad. Jesus says you're really good at not just 
setting aside the law of God, not, not giving the law of God second place to the traditions of men, not giving the law of God a lesser influence in your life. You're really good, Jesus says, at rejecting the law, rejecting the commandment of God. Look at how this word is used elsewhere. March, or, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 7, verse 30. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Galatians 2 and verse 21, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. Or Hebrews 10 and verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy. Okay, so Jesus very plainly, he's not giving the option to say, you know, you've got a a certain respect for the commandments and a certain respect for the tradition of the elders. And they just sort of come together and they complement one another. Jesus isn't allowing that at all. He's saying, you've done one of the two. You either cling to the commandments of God, the word of God, or you reject it outrightly and cling to the tradition of men. It matters not what their outward appearances are. It matters not what they say with their mouth, that they say with their mouth, we love the commandments. We love the law. We love the word of God. That matters for nothing because Jesus is looking at their heart and saying in your heart, you have abandoned, rejected, nullified, forsaken the word of God in order to, there's a, there's a causation word there. There's the word of cause. It's henna is the word. In order to, here's the purpose. Here's the cause. Here's the goal that you have in mind in order to establish your tradition. That word established just means to observe, to keep, to guard something. Look at how it's used in Matthew 7, I'm sorry, 27 and verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus, same word there. So keeping watch, they're guarding Jesus. Jesus says you've abandoned the commandments in order to guard or keep watch over your traditions. Matthew 28, verse 20, verse 4, just a few verses later, it's used in the noun form. In the noun form, it means a guard. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So keeping, holding, guarding. Look at John 8, verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word. Or John 9, verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Or many times throughout this section, We will read something similar to this. John 14 and verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So you see the the polarity. You see the contrast that Jesus has plainly put forth. And the contrast is you have rejected, abandoned, left, forsaken, nullified the law of God, the commandments of God in order to cling to, hold to, establish, grip firmly, seize upon your own traditions. Now, Jesus is going to go on to give a case study or an example, and we'll come back to we'll read this, or we'll come back to it. So verse 10, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition. So we'll come back to Jesus' case study, to his example, but we'll skip down to see, to see his conclusion. His conclusion is, I give you this example of something that you're doing, and the example shows you that what you are doing is making void, nullifying, invalidating, neutering the Word of God. 
What you are, what you are doing is rendering powerless, rendering ineffectual, causing to be without effect, defanging the word of God. You know what that means to defang something? Think of like a tiger. It has his fangs and, and, and the tiger's fangs. What do the tiger's fangs do? They don't just make him look mean and nasty. They enable him to catch his food because he takes those fangs and puts them into his prey and those fangs hold his prey while he kills it. Now you take that tiger's fangs and you pull them out and that tiger will die because you have defanged him. You have taken from him his ability to continue existing. This word means that you have defanged the word of God. You have dehorned the word of God. I think back to when I was a kid and we would cut the horns off of my granddad's cattle. The horns that were their means of protection that would end up making them dangerous to be around. We would cut the horns off, thereby rendering them not dangerous or declawed. You've declawed the word. You you cat owners, you know, uh, first of all, you know you're crazy. But second of all, you know that if if you take a cat and you declaw the cat, then what can that cat not do? It can't live outside because it can't protect itself. You have declawed the word of God. You have neutered the word of God. You have voided, you have made ineffectual the Word of God. Galatians 3 and verse 17. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not, does not annul, avoid, make void, neuter, render powerless a covenant previously ratified by God. Now you have made void the Word of God. How? By your tradition. I don't think Jesus could have been any plainer in what he's saying. Jesus is not, again, leaving us the option of thinking, oh, these Pharisees and scribes were good-hearted, they had good intentions, they loved the law, they loved the Word, and in their zeal to protect the Word, they overdid it. Jesus is saying, each person can have one and only one authority. And your authority is either the Word of God completely and totally or it's not at all. Jesus is saying that the Word of God will not, cannot share any authority in your life. You cannot take the Word and say, well, the Word of God is my main authority, but I couple that together with this other authority. I couple that together with this other body of teaching or this other, I don't know, experiences of life that I've collected over my years. I I take the Word of God and I put it together with my experiences and that's my authority. God says, no. If that's the case, your authority is your experiences, not the Word. Because the Word of God must be the exclusive soul authority or it's no authority at all. Those aren't my words. That's plainly what Jesus is saying to us. You may have pretended to have this dual authority that regulates your beliefs and your religious practices, and you call this dual authority the commandments of God along with the tradition of the elders. But Jesus says, no, quite plainly, you have done away with completely the word, the commands of God, and you've replaced them with your own commands. 